0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do that from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Today's guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and returning for an update on the public health aspects of COVID, especially those that uh, relate to returning to this practice of Mass. We have Dr. Paul Seeslack.
1: Tom, sometimes our guests are so great, we just have them back over and over and over. Uh, and this is one of those cases Dr. Paul sees like, uh, is a master's in public health in addition to being a physician, and he's an expert in infectious disease uh, and the medical director of the Oregon Public Health Division of Communicable Disease and Immunization Programs. He's also, probably most importantly, an active member of the Catholic Medical Association. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Dr.
2: Well, thank you for having me and bless you for your kind comments.
1: (laughs) We're very happy to have you back. This is, uh, you know, news that's developing by the hour as it has been since the start of this. And, And with that in mind, we interviewed you just a few weeks ago during Holy Week. What would you say have been the most really relevant and important discoveries made regarding this COVID virus in the United States since then?
2: Well, we're over a million cases uh, confirmed in the United States at this point. And uh, of course, the case counts continued to rise. Uh, and, and we're over 55,000 deaths right now. Um, But it looks like uh, the disease has been peaking in in many areas of the country, including in New York City, which has been hit the worst. So if you've been paying attention, New York City has had over 160,000 cases and more than 41,000 hospitalized. Uh, So they have clearly been hit uh, much harder than most of the rest of the country. It's almost like uh, there's there's two different epidemics going on, one going on in New York City and, and one going on in the rest of the country.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that from really every perspective with every guest we've had. But we've also struggled in every episode, I think, to try to give listeners a a sense of perspective if we think about the death rate. Uh, Not the death rate, but the total number of deaths. And maybe you could do that for us because that sounds like an astronomical number. But could you maybe help us and our listeners put that number in perspective?
2: Uh, well, you know, the CDC estimated several years ago that influenza, uh, either you know, by directly causing death or by uh, pushing people over the edge who already had heart disease or lung disease, uh, caused an estimated 23,000 deaths a year on average. So we're already over twice that amount with confirmed COVID deaths. Uh, those influenza deaths that CDC talks about are not all confirmed; they're an estimate based on. Uh, excess deaths while influenza is circulating. And uh, we haven't come up with an, an estimate of excess deaths since COVID is circulating. But l- let me say that that's a, that's a high death count. And uh, so this, this disease is, is proving to be worse than influenza, at least during this, our first year of uh, seeing it.
0: Because the deaths we're seeing, we've seen in maybe a mainly a five or six week period, whereas the influenza deaths span, what, six months?
2: Yeah, the you know, influenza season, we typically say, starts around the 1st of October and uh, and goes into, you know, usually March or April. So uh, maybe 20 weeks uh, and and right over a much shorter period of time, we've seen all of these uh, COVID deaths.
0: So one of the things we talk about is the need to develop herd immunity. And for this, you know, the estimates of are maybe 60% need to have antibodies to, to develop that. So what are the latest estimates on how many people have been exposed to it, those who know they have with symptoms and those who haven't had symptoms?
2: Right. Well, there's estimates based on modeling and there's estimates based on, uh, on antibody testing. You know, presumably if you have the antibodies, then, uh, it means that so you've been exposed and your body has mounted an immune response of some sort to it. Um, however, uh, two things one is that the antibody test can have a lot of false positives anywhere from one to three percent of people who have never had covid are going to test positive by an antibody test so you have to take that into account and the second thing is that i think that the percentage of people who have been infected is going to vary really wildly in different parts of the country Uh, in new york city they did a, a pretty thorough uh, testing of the population, and they estimated that 21% of New York City residents had been infected. Uh, yeah, out here in Oregon, we haven't done a sero survey like that, a, a survey of antibody test results, but we're estimating that well under 1% of Oregonians have been infected. So it, it's going to be, uh, it, it varies quite while, widely across the country. But in no in no case are we anywhere near uh, herd immunity. Uh, you mentioned the figure of sixty percent. I would say somewhere between fifty-five and eighty percent of the population are going to need to be immune to this disease before we get uh, herd immunity, and we are very, very far below that figure.
1: Well, in your experience, do you remember uh, another outbreak in history that has seemed to show this regional or localized phenomenon? Um, you know, with
2: New York versus sort of the rest of the country? Uh, Sure. Um, You know, uh, when West Nile virus first struck, it kind of took its time getting across the country. I I think to some degree that it's true with almost any outbreak, but uh, over a sustained period of time like this with a disease that's transmitted so readily from person to person, no, I don't remember seeing anything quite like it. And uh, it's hard not to be tempted to believe that it has to do with population density, Uh, you know, out in the western part of the country where uh, there's a lot more wide open spaces, fewer people per square mile, uh, infection rates seem to have been much lower than um, in some of the more crowded, uh, you know, big cities. Paul,
0: a graphic that I saw and that I shared with you and Paul Carson we were texting this week was hospitalization rates by age for seasonal flu versus COVID. And I think you even confirmed that in Oregon, there had been three times as many hospitalizations this year for influenza as for COVID. And so did this article show based on CDC data. How does that fit? Is it just because the influenza doesn't lead to death as much that we haven't seen it make as big an impact on hospitals in certain parts of the country?
2: Yes, I think that's the case. Um, uh, And again, forgive me, but the data I know best are are Oregon data and in the Portland area where we track hospitalizations from influenza, uh, anywhere from two to five percent of people hospitalized with influenza in any given season uh, will die from their influenza, two to five percent. With covid You know, 25 or 30% of hospitalized people are succumbing to the disease. So, uh, a a much higher rate. And if you look, there was a a recent publication in New York City where they reviewed uh, 5,700 hospitalized people. Yes. And, um, and, you know, if if you were an older person who had to go on a ventilator, uh, you had a very low chance of surviving your COVID.
0: But last weekend, uh, we interviewed a uh, critical care doc in charge of a unit here, and we talked about that study. And he pointed out that many of the people that should be in the denominator of that were still in the hospital alive. And he thinks That's that proportion is going to come down. Uh, but I hope one, so. one, one of the fascinating things in that particular study that got me is that ninety-four percent of those hospitalized people, those fifty-seven hundred people, had one pre-existing condition, and eighty-eight percent had two pre-existing conditions besides age, you know, obesity, diabetes, coronary artery artery disease, hypertension, or heart failure. So it says that this disease was particularly bad in these people, or or is that a huge percent of our population who would have two of those diseases or more?
2: It's a pretty big percentage. I I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, at one point I, I asked the question here in Oregon, you know, what percentage of Oregonian adults... Uh, have some sort of chronic underlying illness, yeah. and it turns out that uh, you know if you add the the population over 60 who are thought to be at high risk because of their age to the adults with uh, chronic underlying illnesses, you get to more than half of the population. Uh, now. So so I think we, what we really need to do is, is to do some studies that hone in on what are the really severe risk factors. You know, is it diabetes? Uh, is it uh, chronic cardiac, uh, cardiac disease? Is it uh, chronic underlying lung disease? What are the diseases that really uh, put you at high risk so that we can take extra measures to protect those people?
1: And, you know, we've talked about this before on other episodes, but I think the fact that we're in the, what feels like past the middle of this pandemic and we're still asking those questions, that is such a new phenomenon for the public and for our, our listeners. You know, I'm, I'm myself, I have high blood pressure. And so I, I found myself walking around thinking, "Oh no, what about my ACE receptors? Does this make me, if I'm exposed? And, and the answer is we're not exactly sure. And our patients and the public are not accustomed to us saying we're not exactly sure. Uh, that's I think that's been a new phenomenon, don't you?
2: Uh, possibly, but I will say that, um, you know, the, the, the disease, um, is new and, uh, we're really learning a lot from it as we go. And we're trying to do that while managing, you know, a large number of, uh, medical and public health issues. Right. Uh, I and, and, and the other thing that people need to realize is that, um, you know, real scientific study takes takes time. It's not easy to do. Uh, you know, you don't get the answer immediately. And, and already, um, you know, we're seeing lots of publications out there uh, that, that some of which are turning out to be, you know, too preliminary and the results didn't pan out when they were studied in a little bit more depth. So I think... Um, I, I think it's going to take time for people to ferret these things out and they need to look very closely and control for all the unknown factors and, and that kind of thing. And
1: oh, that, no, yesterday. that is scientific research and, and we're used to talking in in those terms. And Tom and I have mentioned that with, with other guests as well, but uh, I think our listeners are learning to be epidemiologists of sorts, but it, it is an unusual concept for the general public to think, well, I saw it published. It must be right. And in reality, that's not science. We have to as you point out, we've got to parse all that data, debate that data, and clean it up sometimes.
0: Right. Uh, although, speaking of studies, we did just get a brand new one out uh, yesterday, April 29th, with some exceptionally good news from the NIH. The most rigorous study to date with remdesivir, showing that that drug does uh, heal people 31% faster. They had to unblind the study because it came to statistical significance. What do you think about that, Paul?
2: Uh, that's good news. Um, I, I still need uh, to see some more details on that study to know how good it is. Like, uh, okay, the people who recovered recovered a couple of days earlier, but did it keep people out of the intensive care unit or did it you know, right. keep people from dying? Those are really the things that uh, I want to know. And uh, I, I haven't seen those results yet. So I'm kind of waiting to see those.
0: Well, as we're coming to the end of the first segment of our show, it's time for the trivia question of the week. So here we go. The first death due to COVID in the United States was reported on February 29th in the state of Washington. However, an autopsy done earlier in April of an unsolved, rapid death that happened February 6th documented now the earliest death due to COVID to have taken place in another state, not in Washington. Which state was it? Was it Oregon, the home of our guest Paul Cieslak, California to the south of Oregon, on the other coast, New York, New Jersey, or Massachusetts. You'll have to hang around till the end of the show to get the answer when we'll be back with more here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio.
1: And welcome back to the studios of Redeemer Radio. You're listening to Dr. Doctor, and we're very pleased to have our guest again with us, Dr. Paul Mm Zizlik. Paul, as uh, as we move in after the break here, earlier in the week, we had the pleasure, Tom and I did, of interviewing the president of the catholic medical association dr mike parker and he gave us some homework and that was related to asking you some <laughs> questions uh, and the first one was based on the latest information on using ultraviolet light to clean surfaces that could be contaminated with the sars virus are you aware of any contemporary uh, information on that
2: uh, yes um uh, at least a little bit aware of it um, UV light has been tested against this virus and it is found to be able to inactivate the virus. Uh, I think the question remains as to whether it will be a practical means of of uh, inactivating the virus. So you are going to be able to get the light into all the places that it needs? And at doses that won't be harmful to human beings. So, you know, we're reading, for example, that uh, ultraviolet C, which is uh. less harmful to skin, uh, may be able to inactivate the virus, but ultraviolet C is not totally benign. I mean, it can injure the eye, for example. And uh, so, so that, that needs a little bit more study. There's and isn't also-
0: ultraviolet C often used like in um, cafeteria lines above foods to kind of keep them germ free? I remember that in college.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry. Actually, I don't know the answer to that question. But, Ohio State uh, if,
0: didn't invest in that, huh? Oh.
2: <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is uh, is that um, there, there were some modeling studies that looked at uh, infection rates in different parts of the globe and kind of tried to correlate with um, – with uh temperature and humidity and things like that and uh it did seem that the temperate zones of which we are uh, unfortunately in one uh had higher rates of disease than uh, the other two zones so um and, what and are the other it, two zones well then in you know tropical or uh or subarctic zones
0: and do you wait, think that's wait, because of temperature the... or humidity
2: well, it's, you know, this is an ecological study, so you, you kind of don't know exactly what it's related to. But, um, but the virus has been found to survive longer uh, when it's dry. It doesn't survive as well in humid conditions, and uh, it survives longer in cooler areas than it does in uh, warmer areas. You
1: well, know, we talked with Dr. Paul Carson about this a little bit, but, you know, why is the disease so different in New York than it is, say, in Miami? Uh, and we've hypothesized maybe it has something to do with the temperature, the humidity, I mean, certainly population densities, but there's no, um, there's no universal use of, a, say, a subway system in Miami as there is in New York. Do you have feelings about that? And is it related to temperature and humidity, do you think?
2: Well I think it might be it's it's a really hard thing for epidemiologists to study because it's it comes with what we call the ecological fallacy when you find that uh, the disease rate is higher in New York City than it is in Miami then you know anything in New York City could be blamed and anything in Miami could be credited and and we have no way <laughs> epidemiologically to tease those things apart. Uh, you know whether it has to do with temperature or humidity or uh, or, or the uh, presence of orange groves, for example. Uh, there, there's there's no way to separate those things epidemiologically.
0: That's a bummer, uh, Paul. Another question that Mike Parker had that was I hadn't thought of, but I thought maybe we could get some information quickly with this. And he was wondering if you know, on a, for a certain period of time, that everybody who went in to get a blood draw done at certain labs would have some of their blood sent for an antibody test to COVID, would that be a good way to more rapidly get uh, a sense of the prevalence or would that be um, a selected population therefore wouldn't be useful information?
2: Well, to that, I would say both. I mean, it's going, you are going to have biases in in the selection there. That is not going to be a random or totally representative sample of the population. Uh, That said, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to go around to neighborhoods and get a random sample of blood from people. And so sometimes the best that you can do is to say, well, you know, the people who show up for medical care in, in this city are probably kind of similar to the people who show up for medical care in that city, and we can at least do uh, a comparison along those lines. Uh, remember, though, you still have all the, the problems that I mentioned earlier with antibody testing, um, false positivity rates, um, so you got to take those into account. Well,
1: in our own community, we received an email from our hospital system saying, "Good news, antibody testing is available." And then you read through the email, and it goes out appropriately to to say, "It turns out we don't really know what this means, and it's a qualitative <laughs> test, and it'll just say present antibody, not a titer of antibody." And the reality is, we don't know if that present antibody is conferring immunity on the individual or not. So, in other words, we don't really know if this test has any value or not. And I think all of us found that rather frustrating. But that's the state of the science at the moment, isn't it?
2: Uh, yes, it is. And, you know, it may have some utility epidemiologically at some point. And certainly, I think, you know, if, if your prevalence, as they, they think they found in New York City, is is 21 percent. I mean, I think that's very useful to know, Uh the, the test is going to be much less useful in a low prevalence situation where the likelihood of a false positive is probably greater than the likelihood of a true positive. But from a clinical standpoint for the doctors out there, you know, you just need to remember the old adage that uh, you shouldn't order a test unless you know what you're going to do yeah, with the, do the results of it.
1: Yeah, that's a great adage. I mean, interestingly, uh, for me as a gynecologic surgeon, uh, my hospital this week has, has required COVID testing for in the preoperative period for all patients entering the hospital for an elective procedure. And uh, just a couple of days ago, I had the first patient completely asymptomatic and has been for months. She tested positive. PCR or antibody. I believe it's antibody, although it's tough to understand, but I believe it's antibody. And not only is this poor woman, you know, looking for advice on does she get to have her surgery? She wants to know, has she had the disease or not? She doesn't believe she has. And to your point about false positives and unknown ramifications, it's a very confusing time for patients.
0: Paul, Uh, what would you recommend for that patient? If you were that patient, what would you want to have done? If you had no symptoms, no known contact?
2: Uh, the only thing I can think of is that you might, even though you don't have any symptoms, you might want to get the PCR test to see if, if you uh, still have virus in your nose and throat. Uh, even even that is, I think, of, of limited utility, though.
0: Wow. Well, Paul, something that's very important and very timely as we're talking with you, uh, there's a document that's making the rounds that was requested by the Head of Divine Worship uh, Committee for the United States uh, Catholic Council of Bishops, Uh, That's on the Thomistic Institute website at the Dominican House of Studies, and uh, you have read it and reviewed it, and you have your your name on it. It's called Guidelines on Sacraments and Pastoral Care, and it's actually dated April 28th. So, first, it's 23 pages long. What was your general impression of this document and the way it was put together?
2: You know, my first impression was that it was extraordinarily well written. Uh, you know, those Thomistic guys really have got it going in the in the writing department. Um, and secondly, that it was really thorough. They really seemed to have thought of everything. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm uh, eyeball deep in COVID all day long anymore, and and yet they were sort of thinking of things that I hadn't thought of before. And I thought, wow, that was really uh, that was really good thinking. Um, I also like the fact that it's got a little bit of built-in flexibility. So, you know, you're going to have priests who are, you know, able to do things uh, a little bit differently. You know, you're going to have congregations that are more or less concerned about one part of the uh, liturgy than the other. So um, there, there is a little bit of flexibility built in, but it is very... Uh, concerned with trying to to minimize infections uh, in whatever way possible while still uh, making sacraments available to people.
0: Well, let's go through in order of what happens as a Catholic approaches Mass and see what this document says and and what the data is to suggest that we should do that. Uh, The first thing is, what will trigger bishops to start to resume public Masses?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I, I, I suspect that for the most part, they're going to go with what the secular authorities are saying, you know, regarding uh, large gatherings, and uh, and uh, if if they say you know gatherings below 250 people are are now permitted, as opposed to you know previous restrictions to below 50 or below 10, uh, then I suspect that they will want to start opening those things up. Uh, and they'll have to look at things like, you know, how big are the churches and yeah. how many people can they accommodate while maintaining some distance? And do I need to add some more masses in order to accommodate everybody while not crowding them together? Uh, I, I think they're going to be taking those things into account.
1: And, you know, I think the, the faithful are going to struggle with the fact that it, it, it could very well be regionalized. I mean, so mass oh, in will in be. Yes. is not the same as mass at St. Patrick's in New York. Um, <laughs> And that's that's going to be tough for the universal church to understand. I'm not sure we've had to we've had to think that way before. I could almost envision, you know, ma- masses for the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions, and, and, and school-aged masses where it's okay to pack them in. Uh, but that's going to be a very different landscape for us all.
2: Yeah, I think so. But I think it's one that our Catholic tradition can can stand up to. Uh, You know, we have mass celebrated at least slightly differently in different countries of the world, you know, taking into account local customs. Uh, The church has been very good at uh, adapting uh, while maintaining, you know, the core uh, elements of, of the sacred liturgy.
1: Well, let's move on to Tom's point as we approach mass. Uh, what about entrances and? Uh, actually, and before hygiene? that,
0: I thought of a question before that that I typed into the later, and that is, who should stay home from mass? Ah, uh-huh. yeah, good question. And, and, and should the um, uh, the bar for staying home be lower than it generally has been in our past?
2: Uh, lower or higher?
0: <laughs> that the bar uh. to stay home, in other words, oh, let, yes. should we yeah. be staying home with lesser symptoms than we in the past would have?
2: Yeah, yes, I, I think so. Um, You know, in the time of COVID, I I would be worried about people with any respiratory symptom. Now, the typical thing that we've been telling people is if you've got cough or fever or shortness of breath, uh, you should stay home and, and not go out. Uh, But, you know, we know that some cases of COVID are milder than that. Some people present with a sore throat, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we may be telling people, yeah, if you have a sore throat, or even if you just have a runny nose, uh, you should be staying home. I never would have let my kids stay home from mass for a a runny nose. Um, But now we might be saying, you know, Mm -hmm. we we need to do this to be be extra careful.
1: Yeah, I mean, today, prudence is going to be so important. And our Southern listeners can't empathize, but... But, you know, here in northeastern Indiana, we have priests all the time say to the elderly, if the parking lot is covered in ice, don't come to mass. <laughs> you know, you're, you're absolved from that requirement for for your own safety. And we're going to have to hear that, so to speak, all across the country, aren't we?
2: Yes, I think there's going to be more uh, sort of blanket dispensations based on symptoms or or maybe even on those underlying chronic conditions that put you at high risk for severe disease.
1: So moving on. So we get there, we decide we're the ones that should go. What do you think about entrances and multiple entrances and hand hygiene and the like?
2: Well, you know, they they talk about, uh, you know, limiting crowding at the entrances, you know, probably stationing people out there to make sure that some sort of uh, distance is maintained. I don't think you're going to see the holy water return to the fonts for some time, at (laughs) least. Uh, And then, you know, you may even see markings on the pews telling people how far apart to sit from each other. Although, you know, the document is, I think, savvy enough to say, look, family members can sit together.
0: Yeah. So, Paul, are we wearing masks when we come to mass, the masked mass?
2: That's that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I have to say there isn't there aren't a lot of data out there attesting to the effectiveness of masks uh, for people who don't have symptoms. Um, You know, there's theoretical reason, uh, it's reasonable to believe that uh, if you do have symptoms that uh, putting a mask on will reduce the amount of droplets that you cough or sneeze into someone else. We, we know that at least some cases are transmitted f- from people without symptoms, and, uh, and people have speculated that maybe a mask would prevent that. I don't know that there are any good data uh, to suggest that that happened. So uh, I think there's going to be some variability in, um, in mask wearing. You
1: know what is interesting uh, that, that I've noticed really just this week is the sort of social effects of the mask on the doctor-patient relationship. So just today, I walked into the preoperative area to say hello to my patient before a surgery, and I just had to take my mask off and say, "It's it's me. I'm the person that you know that you have a relationship with. I'm not... Impersonating me—not that anyone would ever want to impersonate me—but um, but there is something that's uniquely bizarre about approaching someone with a mask on uh, and sort of our ability to identify each other. It's it's very unusual.
2: I think so. I think it's sort of socially hindering, and uh, you know, we have certainly heard from. Uh, people who are deaf or hard of hearing that they rely a lot on lip oh, reading and oh. when you start putting masks on people it, it's really a hindrance to their uh, understanding what you're trying to say i know um there there are there is at least one company out there that's making a clear mask so that you know your your lips can be seen through it but that is effective at uh, at stopping particles so that's that you know maybe we'll be moving to that i don't know
1: but suffice it to say none of us are theologians but i think we can say that our Lord and Savior can recognize us at Mass, even if we
0: have a mask. <laughs> and on that note, we will take our halfway point break and be back with more here with Dr. Paul Cieslak on Dr. Doctor. We're back with uh, our third segment of this show on Dr. Doctor. We're talking with Paul Sieslak about what the mass will look like uh, coming out of the, the COVID um, Distancing tomb, so to speak. Paul, we're gonna see people we haven't seen in weeks or maybe months at mass. What's an appropriate way to greet them?
2: You know, I think you're still gonna have to keep a little bit of distance between them. You know, you're gonna have to uh, convey verbally or with facial expressions, uh, your affection for these people, Uh, you know, Handshaking has long been thought by uh, killjoys like uh, in the infectious disease world, like <laughs> me, uh, to have been a dangerous, um, you know, potentially uh, dangerous uh, way of greeting each other. And and I think um, this may be one of those permanent changes that comes out of COVID. Is that maybe we'll we'll come up with something different than the handshake because you really can transmit a lot of uh, respiratory diseases through that method.
0: Do you have a favorite substitute?
2: Uh, you know, one that doesn't involve touching, I guess, is, is what we're going to have to go to. And no, it's not my favorite exactly, but uh, but I I can't think of anything better.
0: So I mean, do you like a head bow, a full bow? You know, the namaste thing. Oh yeah, yeah,
2: yeah I, I I I very much like all of those. I think uh, the namaste thing is it would be my favorite.
1: You know, it's interesting, uh, Tom and I both have large families with lots of little kids, and many times I've threatened my children with their life if they didn't sing out vigorously. And I've said, I need to hear you singing for it to count. But as we think about some of the the data with choir and infection rates, I, I wonder what singing at mass will be like when we open mass again.
2: Well, right. There was that one horrendous example of a a choir uh, singing and a lot of disease transmission ensuing from it. And it's, you know, biologically plausible. I mean, you can see how with vigorous singing, you know, you're going to be expelling a lot of things um, from your mouth as you go. So I fear that as well. I I do like very much to sing. I I, I sing louder than uh, my voice has any right to do. Um, (laughs) but it, you know, I, it's, it's one of those ways in which I really, uh, Enjoy and feel praising the Lord, um, but uh, I, I certainly think that um, we're going to have to rethink choirs where you put a whole bunch of people together and encourage them to belt it out, uh, and and maybe even uh, you know singing in the pews. I mean, I hope we don't have to do away with it entirely, but um, you know, and and maybe maybe the distancing that we put between people in the pews will uh, will take care of that particular. So you're issue. not
0: concerned about you know, calmer singing at this point being uh, a significant risk for spreading disease?
2: I I guess I'm not. Um, You know, the louder that you're speaking, it it means that you're uh, more forcibly expelling air through your vocal cords. And so I think, you know, the the softer you're saying, probably uh, the less likely you are to do that, or at least uh, the less distance you're likely to propel any droplet.
1: Now, that's when you probably, walk into... that, That's probably good news for the people that sit next to me at Mass. Uh, seeing more <laughs> All right, Chris Stroud. Now, no. now Paul, are, are priests going to be masked?
2: Are priests going to be masked? That is a great question. Um, you know, the document goes into this and they talk about uh, how it it can possibly detract from the signification of uh, different things that the priest is doing in the mass in the mass, and um, so I, I I hope not. I mean, some of this is going to be up to the local ordinary, right? But uh, but but I hope in general that uh, we don't have to have all the priests wearing masks, um, and 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 questions will arise about the consecration of the uh, of the. Of the hosts, especially because I don't think we're going back to uh, communion in the cup anytime soon. Um, but uh, you know, could the priest potentially uh, contaminate the the uh, the sacred body of our Lord? Um, and I, I I think that can be done safely. Um, but uh, but I think there's going to be some hesitation on the part of some priests.
0: And they've talked about putting the hosts kind of off to the side on the altar, even the possibility of uh, consecrating them inside a ciborium with a cover is another thing, but we'll leave that to the the liturgists. A a question that um, precedes maybe some of these is, will pews be roped off so that you can only use every other one or every third? What do you think is the best answer there, Paul?
2: Uh, I, I think short-term, yes, we're going to have to, you know, maintain uh, some distance between people, and that's going to be one way in which we do it. Um, sorry. And to so say. would
0: you use every other or every third? Would you use the six feet thing and just get a tape measure between centers of pews?
2: Yeah, I, I would aim for six feet. In my church, I think that would mean every third.
0: Not every other, every third?
2: I think so. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and and then... Uh, you mentioned it briefly before, but if you come to church in the same vehicle or if you live in the same household, so there's really no reason to keep the six-foot spacing for those in the group.
2: Right. I mean, you're you're exposing each other all the time, and you know whatever I have, my wife has, and vice versa. Uh, so I don't see any uh, point in uh, separating us during the during the mass. It's really trying to maintain some distance from all the people that I don't have regular contact with.
1: Well, Tom, let's move to what may be. Possibly the most controversial mass-related topic, and that is receiving the sacrament uh, in the hands, in the gloved hand, uh, or on the tongue. What, yes. where, where are we there, and what
0: are, what are our well, thoughts there? And, and this is good because just before, two hours before we recorded this, a liturgist for our diocese sent an email with these questions. I said, we're going to ask Paul Cieslak because he loves this document from the Thomistic Institute. And he said liturgists around the country really like this document for being balanced. But he said that a couple priests have expressed grave concerns over distribution on the tongue. He said, apparently the world health organization advised against it, but I looked on the internet, I could find nothing saying that. And he himself receives communion on the tongue. uh, And he knows that how many extraordinary ministers have poor technique and frequently make hand-to-mouth contact. And we also know that saliva can contain SARS. So what do you recommend to these liturgists and bishops who are trying to set their criteria? Uh,
2: you know, there, there are um, points in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that address, uh, that speak of a right to receive in, in the way that the communicant wants to receive it. Uh, all I can speak to is, is to the science, which says right. that uh, the virus lives in the, in the mucous membranes, it lives, lives in the nose and throat and mouth, and that uh, if the priest or the Eucharistic minister is touching the tongue, then, um, then that's going to pose a risk to the next person.
0: And more of uh, a risk than touching their hand.
2: I think so. I think so. Because, you know, the mouth and the nose and the throat are, are where the virus normally lives. Whereas, you know, although your hand can certainly become incidentally contaminated, if you were to, you know, bring your hand to your mouth, as many, many people do very frequently. Uh, It's not sort of the the main place where the virus lives and replicates. So um, I think the contamination is likely to be less And any virus that you get on your hand is likely to at least begin dying off. It it doesn't necessarily die off quickly, but it at least uh, uh, isn't replicating itself there. So I I think the hand is probably... uh, Going to have less virus on it than than your tongue will, and uh, and and the risk is going to be if if the minister touches the tongue. So, uh, you know, if if that doesn't happen, then I don't think there's much risk of transmitting it. But if it does, then I think there is.
1: And this is a tricky intersection between sort of uh, science, theology, and I guess maybe politics, because I think it's it's fair to acknowledge that pre-pandemic, there were those who were suggesting that, um, you know, in certain parishes, people who wanted to receive on the tongue were being denied that or somehow ostracized that. I think that's a legitimate discussion, but that's been greatly complicated by this pandemic. And what we're talking about is the science of viral transmission by salivary droplets. And, and the reality is should the the priest or the extraordinary minister touch the mucous membrane and then touch the mucous membrane of the next person, they very well may transmit that virus. Uh, that we're not advocating for a change in liturgy. We're trying to advocate for for good hygiene and good science while we get through this pandemic.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, and I, I don't think I can say much in addition to that.
0: So and then the sign of peace would be similar to probably greeting people. What about having altar servers?
2: Uh you know it might be prudent not to uh not to bring more people up there into the sanctuary. Uh you know priests are perfectly capable of uh of carrying out the the mass without altar servers and um and the altar servers tend to be in uh, close proximity to each other and to the priest and uh, and we may you know we may want to just reduce the traffic up there in the sanctuary
0: and One thing this document goes through are the options of having uh, the Eucharist distributed within mass or after because they say it might be safer for the priest to have a mask on when he's distributing the Eucharist and to do that after mass for people who want to receive. but if as if I understood the document right, they would not be wearing gloves to distribute the Eucharist, correct?
2: That's right, they don't. So uh, the the guidelines, I believe, have an option for distributing communion either within Mass or after the Mass, so that the priest could um, consecrate uh, the Blessed Sacrament uh, on the altar during the Mass, and they could basically complete the Mass, and then communicants could be invited to receive afterwards when the priest would... Uh, would uh, I believe take the chasuble off and um and uh, perform hand hygiene using you know an alcohol based hand sanitizer and then uh, distribute with uh, with his bare hands. The priest, as I understand it, should not be distributing with gloved hands.
0: And do you think that if a priest accidentally touches somebody's hand, they should turn right back to the hand sanitizer, use that before continuing distribution?
2: You know, I think the risk is likely to be very, very low. Uh, you know, it, it may be a prudent thing for priests to do just to um, allay the concerns of uh, of the subsequent communicant, but but I think that risk is likely to be very What low.
0: about priests who have multiple comorbidities, pre-existing conditions? Do you think it's wise for them to then let their extraordinary ministers do it to reduce their own risk of receiving SARS-CoV-2?
2: It may be. Um, uh, you know, hopefully when, when the communicants are coming up, they're not, uh, you know, coughing or, um, or, or, or staying at close contact for any length of time. So again, I, I, I don't think the risk is huge to, to that priest. Uh, and, and as you know, we have a lot of, uh, elderly priests who, who, who might be concerned about this. Uh, I, I don't think the risk is huge if the, uh, parishioners, the communicants, have um, observed the admonition not to come to church if they have symptoms like that.
1: And, and that's an important point, I think, to drive home to our listeners in that um, it, it, it's so necessary to to be thinking of those around you more than yourself. So we've got to find a way, those uh, those of us who've been starved from the sacrament now for many weeks, to say, as badly as I want to go to Mass because of my responsibility to take care of those around me, not the least of which may be my priest, I'm going to stay home because, because I think I pose a risk to them. That's not necessarily an intuitive way for parishioners to think, but yet in these early phases of reopening, we just have to think that way. There's just no alternative.
2: That's right.
0: Let's talk about another sacrament, um, the sacrament of confession. What recommendations would you have for doing that safely?
2: Okay, so um, you know, first of all, you'd think about the the, the line to the confessional. So we're going to want to maintain some distance uh, between people who are waiting in line. Uh, I think the screen uh, between a priest and a and a, conf- uh, a penitent is going to be sufficient protection for both of them. Uh, you know, if you're if you're kneeling in front of the screen. Um, and then the only other thing to be concerned about is, uh, you know, do you need to wipe down things with maybe, uh, you know, a sanitizer, uh, between usage, you know, the, uh, the predo that you're kneeling on, uh, or, or the handle to the door, uh, to the confessional. Uh, so some steps might be taken in that direction to, um, to, to make sure that people are uh, cleaning, you know, before and after they go in.
0: Paul, as we start to engage, you know, more socially, and economically, what should be realistic expectations for the level of cases that we should allow? Because, I mean, getting to zero is not realistic. So what what's the, the happy medium?
2: That is a really tough question, and uh, I don't have the answer to it, and I don't know that anybody does. I think we're eventually going to have to find out. We are hopeful that having suppressed transmission through all the social distancing measures up till now. Uh, and with a lot of extra effort on the part of public health to do contact tracing, to isolate and uh, isolate infected people, and to quarantine exposed people, uh, that we can let the rest of society go on without completely overwhelming the medical system with cases. Uh, failing that, I think, um, you know, it's, it's conceivable that we'd move to a strategy more like Sweden's where we uh, uh, give the virus a little more free rein, but uh, do everything we can to protect the most vulnerable. You know, which means, um, you know, even uh, cutting them off from uh, anybody who might infect them with even more uh, stringent means. Uh, well,
1: I, had a, I had a patient ask me this question. Why is influenza seasonal and this virus from what we, from what we're being told, may push through the summer into the fall, into the winter again.
2: Well, first of all, we we don't know that it will, right? I mean, time will tell. Uh, but viruses behave very differently. I mean, even in, even in viruses of the same family, I'm thinking of parainfluenza virus, you know, there's parainfluenza one, two, and three. Uh, this is not influenza, this is parainfluenza. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of them is kind of year round and the other two are quite seasonal. Uh, so I don't, I don't think we understand all that. I think, uh, I think a lot of it may have to do with humidity. Uh, believe it or not, it tends to be drier in the winter months. And, and that may be because we're indoors and the heat is on, um, but they, they survive better in uh in in winter months than they do in summer months. So uh so I, I don't I don't think we fully know why influenza is seasonal, to be honest with you. And <laughs> and I don't think we know whether uh COVID nineteen will be.
0: Paul, what are the most important lessons you have personally learned as a public health physician who is also a Catholic in the last six months? Or six weeks, I should say.
2: Wow, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, you know, as I said, I've been up to my eyeballs in COVID, and uh, and it's been a really, really long slog. And uh, one of the things I've got that I think some people don't have is is uh, trust in the Lord and and knowing that uh, you know he, he's gonna he's gonna make things work out for the best for those who love him. Uh, and so I'm I'm banking a lot on that. Uh, also, I can pray you know, that, that this thing goes away and that the Lord will, will spare us. You know, I guess I'm reminded of uh, when King David went and fasted and prayed that the plague would leave, would leave and, uh, and the Lord answered the prayer. So that's where I am on this.
0: Paul, we're going to take a break right now before our last segment here and wrap it up with the three of us here on Dr. Doctor.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, here from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and our listeners know it's time for the long-awaited answer to the medical trivia question. So the first death due to COVID in the U.S. was reported back in February, on February 29th, and it was in the state of Washington, but news now tells us that there was actually an earlier case than February 6th, and the question is, in what state was that case?
0: Was it Oregon, California, New York, New Jersey, or Massachusetts, and it turns out that it was in a county that 's been in the news because they 've done a, a good a serial survey and that 's in santa clara county california a fifty seven year old healthy woman was at work or at home, but working from home, communicating with people a few hours earlier, and later in the day, her daughter found her dead and they didn 't know what the cause of death, but for some reason, they went back in early April and did an autopsy six weeks after the death or two months after the death, and found out that she had SARS-CoV-2 in her system. So apparently, uh, it had been circulating in some parts of California far earlier than we thought. And so, Paul, what is the importance of discovering this transmission earlier than we knew what was going on maybe in Washington state?
2: Well, it, you know, it bespeaks how long the virus has been present in the United States and probably informs to some degree, uh, the amount of transmission that was going on without us being aware of it. Uh, at this point, uh, you know, it's kind of too late to do anything about that, but, um, but, but it'll be interesting, uh, historically.
1: You know, as I, as I think about that, and, and as I read other things, like all of us are doing continuously on, this virus I find myself wanting to say um, to to some of my close friends don't politicize a a pandemic and I think we've all seen that in the media and it can be really difficult to interpret the science because of the background noise uh, of sort of the politics and and all things are political because that's human nature I I get that but um, but I think as we think about reopening and getting our economy back and getting our sacraments back. I think my advice to listeners would be, one, please be patient with this process, and two, please resist the, uh, the urge to allow this to become politicized. It, it's just too important, uh, and it really does transcend political philosophies and parties and the color of states on maps and such. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Paul?
2: Yeah, well, thank you for that question. I I think, um, you know, it was inevitable that this would become political because, uh, you know it was really extraordinary government <laughs> intervention to, uh, you know that, that that occurred and that was thought to be necessary uh, by many in order to control the transmission and to and to save people's lives. And uh, you know, there's one sense in which political is a dirty word, but in the other, there's another sense in which it isn't quite so dirty. Uh, I, I think the governmental decisions were appropriately political in this sense. That, um that it involves weighing of competing goods I mean I have doctor friends who, you know, to them, everything is about, uh, health and, and about, uh, saving lives and, and, and that's all well and good, but, you know, there's a lot of social good that's involved with, uh, you know, being able to socialize, uh, you know, we don't just live in order to stay healthy. We, we stay healthy in order to, to do things and socialize. And, and, and that was taken away from a lot of people. So we're, we're weighing competing goods here and people are going to fall down on, on, uh, Different sides of that equation, but one thing I found out that I think is 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 not such a good sense is that uh, you know when the finger pointing starts, people want to believe one of two things: they either want to believe that uh, uh, COVID was um, is worse than flu, and therefore everything the government does to stop it is justifiable, or they want to believe that the government overreacted, in which case they want to believe that. COVID was nothing. And, uh, and I actually think both things are, tr- could be true. I, I think that, uh, COVID-19 is significantly worse than influenza. It, it is a big deal. Uh, but it's also possible that in some cases, uh, despite it being a big deal, uh, the government overreacted. So, um, so, you know, as Catholics, I think it would be good if we, if we uh, kept our heads level and, uh, and brought both our faith and our reason to bear in, uh, in assessing this whole thing.
0: Paul, that was absolutely beautiful. You are a real gift to have here with your, your wisdom, both medically and as a Catholic. Uh, we'll probably have you back again sometime to give us an update. We thank you. We thank our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Dr., the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN, Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of this show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Please send us comments, rate, review us. We just like hearing from you.
1: We do. We want to know how you think we're doing. Uh, So, let us know, let us know how this news has uh, affected you positively uh, or negatively. So be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor.
0: This is Dr. Tom McGovern
1: and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And For now, we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine.
0: The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing
1: in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.
0: Abortion. Phonography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.